Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Anyway, 
this one is interesting. This is says a, a bovin. Uh, this is a little longer than it's about ten minutes, but mm-hmm. it, it's a guy who's explaining. It's on YouTube. John, yeah, uh, well, yeah, it's a YouTube mm-hmm. thing, but it's an interview mm-hmm. with a with with a news person. All right, and it says uh, Bolton is the most dangerous American, is, and this guy is a uh, uh, is a uh, Colonel Larry yeah. Wilkerson. He says in his fifty years of service, Bolton is the most dangerous American he's ever met. Says Colonel Larry Wilkins. Mm-hmm. All right. I, you know, I want you to listen to just a just a few moments of this, a few minutes of this. Okay. It's called Real News. It's from a well, I felt it was a scary appointment. Network. I'm Charmaine Pierce coming to you from Baltimore. President Trump's appointment of John Bolton as his national security advisor last week is still making waves. Bolton is well known for his warmongering foreign policy positions, clearly articulated on Fox News. Trump and Bolton agree on tearing up the Iran nuclear agreement and possibly even a military intervention in Iran. However, if we are to believe what the president is telling us through various means, his tweets and so forth, uh, he and Bolton seem to disagree on several issues, such as isolating Russia, engaging in direct talks with North Korea about the nuclear weapons program, or the wisdom of having invaded Iraq 15 years ago. Why then did Trump appoint John Bolton as his national security advisor? Joining me now to analyze this question is Colonel Larry Wilkerson. Larry is former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, now a distinguished professor at the College of William and Mary. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Thanks for having me, Charmaine. All right, Larry, now many foreign policy experts are trying to grapple with the issue of why Trump chose Bolton. Some say it's because Trump was watching Fox, where Bolton is a regular, and that Bolton was actually auditioning for a Trump administration position on Fox. Now, others are saying that this appointment is so controversial that uh, it was done to distract attention from the Stormy Daniels interview on CNN airing that night. Either way, we now have a very dangerous man in the position of National Security Advisor. Would you agree that he is dangerous, and why did Trump appoint him? I would agree that John Bolton is one of the most dangerous uh, Americans, uh, and I use that term loosely with regard to John because of his affiliation so closely with Israel that I've ever met in all my years of 40, 50 years of service. I think you're right, and those whom you were listening to are right, on the one hand, that Trump did this, at least in part, to deflect attention away from some more serious crises that he personally is involved with, everything from Stormy Daniels to the Russia scandal, but also because he wanted to send a signal that he's seeking unanimity within his cabinet. And by unanimity, I mean Uh, people who will ask him uh, what he wants to do and then go do it for him without any dissent, without any questioning, without any uh, additional advice, if you will. As you pointed out, some of the things John Bolton wants to do might not be done, but that's a question, too. Let's examine the position for a moment. I just spent uh, three hours with some very brilliant students doing just this, 
the position of National Security Advisor, of course, is not contemplated at all in the 1947 National Security Act. It just sort of grew out of whole cloth uh, from Eisenhower on. Um, the position only has power if the president gives it power. The proximity of the president, the president's uh, relationship with the National Security Advisor, that's what gives it power. Ronald Reagan, for example, had six different ones. Trump oh. is on a run towards that record, uh, having three already. But Reagan did it for a reason. He did not want a Henry Kissinger or a Zygmunt Krasinski, who worked for Carter, of course, and had emulated Kissinger. He didn't want a National Security Advisor taking over his administration, so he had six of them. What happened in that event, though, was that uh, Bud McFarlane and John Poindexter went off and found their own power, picked it up, and ran with the Iran-Contra affair, which almost got Reagan impeached. So we can see that doing this has its advantages for the president, but it also has its disadvantages. All this to say, John Bolton is not going to be any more powerful than Donald Trump chooses to make him. I suspect John Bolton will walk the length of the White House trying to find some power to pick up, then that's very, very uh, dangerous in the sense that if he can't find it from the president, he'll go out and try to find it either through the bully pulpit, and Trump will cut him off at the knees if he does that. National security advisors don't normally speak to the press or to the people. Or he'll try to find it the way Bud McFarlane and John Poindexter did for Reagan. That is, he'll find something he can do out there with a nefarious Mike Pompeo at CIA and create his own realities which case he'll get the president in deeper trouble than he's already in. Any way you cut it, it probably is not a very good decision. What does the fact that Pompeo, Bolton, and Trump are on the same page when it comes to the Iran nuclear agreement mean to keeping the Iran agreement intact? I think it's very, very likely, and I would bet on it, that on May the 12th, Trump is going to, from his presidential position, uh, extricate the United States from the agreement. Then we've got several things that we need to look at very closely. One is how courageous are the Europeans in standing up to Trump and giving the uh, agreement some resilience, even with the, without the United States, and thus ultimately isolating the United States, not Iran, not the agreement, but the United States. Uh, and also how much courage Bob Corker at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and, of course, the rest of the Senate and the Congress have with regard to not doing things that follow up on Trump's uh, extrication of the U.S., that is to say, making sanctions back uh, for the U.S., snapping them back to the United States, uh, making more sanctions uh, on ostensibly other things like ballistic missiles, terrorism, and so forth, that more draconian, and doing things that make Iran, particularly the hardliners in Iran, figure they've got more influence and, and, and therefore that they bring Iran out of the agreement, maybe increase the number of centrifuges again, begin to do things that look like uh, they might be uh, moving more towards a more robust uh, nuclear program. Well, anyway, this this guy knew, knew Bolton. He said he's, he's a disaster, walking, most dangerous American, he said. And uh, Carter came out today, or, Yesterday or something in an interview said that was the, the a poor appointment. Poor. It was the worst. The worst thing he could have possibly done uh, that Trump could have done. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Other than Jeff Sessions. 
Oh, Jeff Sessions. And DeVos. And DeVos. They're all, they're all oh. absolutely horrible. Would they have a decent appointment if there anybody that was any good? Yeah. yeah. It's really sad. Yeah. Um, this is from, uh, this is sent over by, uh, uh, ask me. Um, 50 years after the Memphis sanitation workers strike. Yeah. Sanitation workers have had uh, been uh, have seen great progress, yet for some, echoes from the past haunt one of the nation's most grueling jobs. Fifty years later, the struggle continues. So they're still having a lot of problems mm-hmm. with with in Memphis as uh, as uh, sanitation workers. I just very briefly go go through this because Ashley sent it over. Um, Maurice. Spivey, a Memphis sanitation worker and member of AFSCME Local 1733, takes pride in serving his community. Every day, he and his co-workers give back to their neighbors and to the city they call home. Just as important, Spivey says, we're holding up Dr. King's blood-soaked banner. He's referring to Martin Luther King Jr.'s role in the 1968 Memphis, Tennessee sanitation workers' strike and the 1,300 sanitation workers of AFSCME, Local 1733, Spivey's forebearers, whose historic strike for better pay, better treatment, and above all, for dignity, forced the city of Memphis to meet the union's long-ignored demands. It was Memphis that Dr. King fought in solidarity with the workers, and where, on April 4, 1968, he gave his life for the cause. Despite the pride of serving their communities, sanitation work is one of the most dangerous and thankless jobs in America. Though things are better than in in 1968, the working conditions for sanitation workers in Memphis remain tough, and many items on the strikers' wish list remain unfulfilled. One reason for this is a push to privatize sanitation workers, which AFSCME is fighting. At each stop, sanitation workers make, they'll drag garbage cans weighing more than 200 pounds each from the curb to a mechanical lift attached to their truck. As the lift dumps the contents into the belly of the truck, the worker must turn away to avoid the dangerous and sometimes poisonous backsplash of liquids that ricochet off the sides of the truck. Ooh. In one day, says Spivey, a sanitation, a sanitation worker might haul as many as 300 cans. Oh, my God, you have to be in good shape. The inside of the garbage cans are only part of the daily ordeal. There are the alley weeds that grow several feet high, clawing at crew members as they navigate narrow, cluttered alleys. There are the spiders, too, which Spivey says grow as big as your hand. And then there's the heat in the summer. Memphis temperatures can reach 100 degrees or more. And for many crew members who work on trucks without air conditioning, The heat combined with the temperature from the engine's motor become unbearable. Another longtime Memphis sanitation worker, Adrian Rogers, says casually, I can expect to end up in the ER at least once in the summertime. Still, Speedy and Rogers acknowledge that by banding together, sanitation workers in Memphis have been able to make life better on the job and for their families. As full-time city workers and AFSCME members, they enjoy health benefits, job security, and most importantly, a seat at the table to negotiate improvements for their families and communities. At the top of their list right now 
is getting working air conditioning in their trucks. Most have none, and securing hazard pay, I think so. Yeah. In fact, what might be surprising is not how far ASME sanitation workers in Memphis have come since 1968, but the fact that for the others, far too little has changed. In addition to a full-time ASME represented sanitation workers like Maurice Spivey and Adrian Rogers, Memphis, like many other cities, also employs a workforce called contingent or part-time sanitation workers whose jobs are just as taxing as Spivey and Rogers, but far more precarious. precarious. One of them was 36-year-old Daryl C. He has dreamed of being made full-time, recalls Christy Clark, a crew chief driver who worked alongside Daryl. This past July, C. Clark and a third member of their crew were out on their day's daily route when that third crew member succumbed to heat exhaustion and needed to be rushed to the hospital. C. and Clark had no choice but to complete their route down a crew member, and as was typical, they were driving a truck with no air conditioning. Returning to the headquarters, they were sent out a second time. It was on that second loop that Derry C. died. C., father of five boys, had been a part-time worker for eight years. He was a good worker, recalled Christy Clark. If he was made permanent, he was going to buy a big house and move his whole family in with him. Contingent workers like Daryl C. and like Christy and Adrian Rogers, who themselves toiled for years as part-time workers, are only permitted to work 56 hours every pay period, or about 28 hours a week. It is not nearly enough to make, make ends meet. Part-time workers generally hold second jobs. As a part-time worker in a twilight zone, Speedy says, oh, in the hopes of being converted to coveted full-time positions, these part-time workers will remain on with the sanitation department as long as they can, aspiring to the same benefits, salary, and security as their full-time counterparts. Just as importantly, there's hope of having a voice in the job by joining together in a union. Right now, contingent workers like Daryl C. work in fear. If a contingent worker gets injured, for instance, they can't afford to tell a supervisor, and they can't request time off to see a doctor, with services they likely wouldn't be able to afford in any event. This goes on. It's pretty sad. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, not that much longer. But, um, <clears throat> Read the last paragraph. Yeah, yeah, I think it's important. It just says echoes from the past, but it says the conditions that can, the conditions that contingent sanitation workers in Memphis face today are sadly not unlike those of 50 years ago. On February 1st, 1968, a storm forced sanitation workers equal coal uh, and Robert Walker uh, to seek shelter in the back of their garbage truck. Cole Walker, Walker and their co-workers, members of Aspen Local 1733, had long struggled to gain recognition in the city to improve their working conditions, their pay, and their lives. And among the sanitation workers' grievances, that had been ignored were warnings about faulty, outdated equipment on their trucks. Uh, those warnings proved tragically prophetic that day when the truck's compactor kicked in and crushed coal and walker to death. Oh, my God. The coal workers decided they had had enough. They voted to strike, marching in the streets, braving tear gas and nightsticks under a simple but powerful slogan, I am a man. Dr. King traveled to Memphis because he believed 
as he wrote from the Birmingham, Alabama jail every years, several years earlier, that injustice anywhere is a threat to, injust, to justice everywhere. I agree with that. And he believed that the needs of African Americans were uh, identical with uh, labor needs and uh, decent wages, fair working conditions, livable housing, old age security, health and welfare measures, uh, conditions in which families can grow, have education for their children and respect in the community. Memphis would be Dr. King's last campaign. Less than 24 hours after delivering his famous mountaintop speech at the Mason Temple, he was struck down by an assassin's bullet. A few weeks later, the strike ended with the city accepting most of the sanitation workers' demands. That's so, wonderful. Yeah. He, was, he was such a But the poor, poor guy had to die to get, uh, to, you know, to become a martyr. Two guys died. Not no, two guys, but... but they were compacted. Uh, oh, yeah. Here's a... Here's a this, this guy's so sweet. Sessions says to court, go ahead and jail people, therefore. Nice <laughs> this guy. This is from the New York Times. Yeah, I don't know if, let's, let's see what this is. This is an uh, op-ed contributor, but, yeah. but let's see what he says. Uh... Last week, Attorney General Jeff Sessions retracted an Obama-era guidance to state courts that was meant to end debtors' prisons, where people who are too poor to pay fines are sent. This practice is blatantly unconstitutional, and the guidance has helped jumpstart reform around the country. Its withdrawal is the latest sign that the federal government is retreating from protecting civil rights for the most vulnerable among us. If you can't pay a fine, you go to jail. Yeah. The Justice Department helped shine a light on the harms of fines and fees when it investigated Ferguson, Missouri, three years ago, after the killing of teenager Michael Brown by a, by a uh, police officer. As one of the lawyers on that case, I saw firsthand the damage that the city had wrought on its black community. Ferguson used its criminal justice system as a for-profit enterprise extracting millions from its poorest citizens. Internal emails reveal that head of finance directing policy uh, policing strategy to maximize revenue rather than ensure public safety. Officers told us they were pressured to issue as many tickets as possible. And uh, even the, the local judge was in on it, uh, imposing penalties of $302 for jaywalking. $531 for allowing weed to grow in one's yard. Can you imagine that? Mm -hmm. uh, he issued arrest warrants for residents who fell behind on payments, including a 67-year-old woman who had been fined for a trash removal violation without inquiring whether they even had the ability to pay the exorbitant amounts. The arrest resulted in new charges, more fees, and a suspension of driver's license. These burdens fell disproportionately on African Americans. After the time of our investigation, over 16,000 people had outstanding arrest warrants for Ferguson at a city of 21,000. Untold numbers found themselves perpetually in debt to the city and periodically confined to its jail. These problems were so unique to Ferguson. We're not. We're not, rather. A Georgia woman served eight months in custody past her sentence because she couldn't pay a $700 fine. A veteran battling homelessness in Michigan lost his job when judges jailed him for bringing only $25 rather than the required $50 for his payment to court. 
a judge in Alabama told people too poor to pay that they could either give blood or go to jail. Jesus, this is Alabama, man. In 2015, the Justice Department convened justice judges, legislators, advocates, and affected people to discuss this problem with devised solutions. Participants uh, repeatedly asked the uh, judicial, the Justice Department, rather, to clarify the legal rule that governed the enforcement of financial penalties to support widespread reform. You want to read the rest of that? And so we did. Relying on Supreme Court precedent from over 30 years ago, the 2016 guidance set out basic constitutional requirements. Do not imprison a person for non-payment without first asking whether he or she can pay. Consider alternatives like community service. Do not condition access to court hearings on payment of all outstanding debts. The Justice Department also provided financial resources to the field. It investigated and invested in the efforts of a national task force of judges and court administrators to develop best practices. And it created a $3 million grant program to support innovative homegrown reforms in five states. Along with private litigation and advocacy, these efforts have helped drive changes around the country. Uh, Missouri limited the percent of city revenue that can come from fines and fees and announced court rules to guard against unlawful incarceration. California abolished fees for juveniles and stopped suspending the driver's licenses of people with court debt. <coughs> Louisiana passed a law requiring that judges consider a person's financial circumstances before imposing fines and fees. Texas, where the court system's administrative director said the guidance was very helpful and very well received by judges across the state, issued new rules to prevent people from being jailed for their poverty. The American Bar Association endorsed the Justice Department's guidance and the Conference of State Court Administrators cited it as a policy paper on ending, ending debtors' prison. So this goes on. Viewed in that light, the true intent of Mr. Sessions' decision comes uh, into focus. Sessions pulled 25 guidance documents last week. 16 of them involve civil rights protections, including 10 related to the Americans with Disability Acts and one on the special harms that unlawful fines and fee practices can have on young people. Withdrawing these documents is consistent with the Trump administration hostility to civil rights and a host of other areas. Abandoning oversight of, of police departments, reinterpreting anti-discrimination statutes to deny protection to LGBT individuals, and switching sides in key voting rights issues. The push to abolish debtors' prisons will continue as community advocates and local officials press on. It would be preferable, of course, for the federal government to fulfill its role as a leading protector of basic rights, constitutional rights. Unfortunately, Mr. Sessions has made clear that under his leadership, it will not. I mean, they arrested... He's they, just doing Trump's bidding. Not just that, he's a prick. He's mm -hmm. the biggest freaking prick we've ever had in that office, uh, Attorney General. He's not I mean, a nice man. No, he's a prick. He's a deadhead fucking prick. He's, the guy deserves the worst of the worst. May he ever go down in living hell. Okay? Howard Stern says Donald Trump should get the fuck out of the White House. I agree with him. He's a friend of Trump's. And go back to Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. <laughs> get the fuck out of the White House. 
Oh, let's see what he has to say. Uh, Trump admits groping Melania. <laughs> I guess it didn't bother her. Miriam. Yeah. yeah. She liked it. I don't know what she... She loved it. Howard Stern has some advice to his good pal Donald Trump. Get the hell out. Get the fuck out of there. And by there, Stern met the White House. The radio host made the remarks on Tuesday episode of his uh, serious radio. So when you sit there, like, does she dress up real hot? Like, does she wear like mini skirts or something? She wears, yeah. Well, she's a pretty conservative person, but she, uh, she will wear pretty well clothing. Like, and can you go to like red? That's Donald Trump talking with Howard Stern. Go ahead. Like, do you go to like regular restaurants and stuff with her? Yes. And then like you walk in and you right. sit at a table. Right. And she's like, does she wear not like a wear panties? And then, like, you're sitting there, please, <laughs> I, I have to ask these questions. Howard, you're talking about a potential first lady. This is not appropriate. Yeah, but forget that. Please, you've got to help me out with this. i got to know because I have no life. Let me ask you something. You're telling me she sits there with no panties and then, like, like does she ever, like, put her foot in your crotch? Go ahead. Well, I'll, I'll say this. We get along very well. Oh. We get along very, very well. Have you ever felt her up in public? Ecuador's Julian Assange's communication 
with the outside world from its London embassy, where the founder of the whistleblowing WikiLeaks website has been living for the for nearly six years. Oh my God! <laughs> the Ecuadorian government said in a statement that it has acted because Assange has breached a written commitment made to the government at the end of 2017, 2017 not to issue messages that might interfere with other states. It said Assange's recent behavior on social media put at risk the good relations maintained with the United Kingdom, um, with the other states of the European Union and others. It, that embassy is in is in London, actually. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, what did he? What did he do? I wonder. You know, well, yeah, he interfered with other with with the election. Oh. You know, the move. Uh, what happened was the move came after Assange tweeted on Monday challenging Britain's accusation that Russia was responsible for the nerve agent poisoning of Russia former uh, double agent and his daughter. Uh, the uh, WikiLeaks founder also questioned the decision of the UK and more than 20 other countries to retaliate against the poisoning by expelling Russian diplomats. See, he's, he's, he was connected to the Russians. Yeah. There, he was connected to that whole thing, and he was leaking all that sh all this stuff to, to Trump, mm -hmm. to the Trump campaign. Right? On top of everything, Trump was paying for it, which I'm sure he was paying him. Yeah. Assange has lived in the embassy since two, June 2012. And uh, to avoid extradition to Sweden over allegation of sex crimes, he denies. Sweden had adopted the case, uh, had dropped the case, but Assange remains subject to arrest in the UK for jumping bail and fears he will be extradited to the US for questioning about the WikiLeaks activities if he leaves the embassy building. In Ecuador, uh, previously cut Assange's internet access in the embassy on. Uh, in October six, 2016, over fears he was using it to interfere in the U.S. presidential uh, election. Hmm. But in May 2017, the Ecuadorian president again asked Assange to refrain from uh, commenting on Spain's dispute with separatist region Catalonia. Well, Assange tweeted that Madrid was guilty of repression. Uh, part of subsequent agreement between Assange and Ecuadorian government he is not permitted to send any messages that could interfere with the Ecuadorian relationship with other countries. So that's what's happened there, and he's getting, you know, he's getting his, uh, they're, 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 they're going to throw him up. Clearly, Ecuador's government has been subjected to bullying over his decision to grant Julian a, a, asylum uh, and support an ultimate and so on and so forth. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. But anyway... Doesn't look good for Giuliano, man. No, no boy, it sure doesn't. So he's uh, he's maybe on his last legs. Well, the reason is is because they, that you know it's coming at he, well he, he's yeah you know, hmm. he's getting close to Mueller's getting pretty close, and um, that's why Trump is doing crazy things, and that's why everybody's going crazy there because you know he's he's almost there. Yep. Um, impeaching Trump is now being discussed by some Republicans, but will others follow? Hmm. Two Republican senators said Tuesday that they would support impeachment if Donald Trump fires special prosecutor um, Trump. Yeah. Oh, this is the one that killed me. Education secretary. All right. I may not be able to read, but yeah, I won't be able to get to that because they want you to pay a buck to, to read it. 
The Washington Post is the biggest freaking crooked son of a bitch thing next to uh, uh, Bezos Amazon. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they come up. They 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 post this stuff on on uh, on on Facebook or any place. But they they give you little tires and then they and then they won't let you read the article unless you pay them a, a buck, all right? Huh? Up yours, Washington Post. You know, may you go freaking bankrupt. I will never fake news junk pile crap pile of crap. Never read a Washington Post again. But anyway, religious left emerging as U.S. political force in Trump era. That was kind of interesting, too. Now, who would that be exactly? Well, there's a bunch of them, actually. A bunch of them. The the one that's uh, the one that's running in New York there, the, the starlet, who's on Sex and the City. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's, she's having a good time with that. Since Donald Trump's election, monthly lectures on social justice at the 600-seat Gothic Chapel of New York's Union Theological Seminary have been filled to capacity with crowds three times what it usually draws. Um, in January, the 181-year-old Upper Manhattan Graduate School, um, the, uh, uh, more Democrats opposed Trump's Supreme Court pick after uh, uh, turned away. From, uh, in January, 181-year-old Upper Manhattan Graduate School. Uh, turned away about a thousand people from a lecture on mass incarceration. In the nine years that Reverend Sarah Jones had served as its president, she had never seen such crowds. So, but uh, anyway, the election of Trump has been a clarion call to progressives in the Protestant Catholic churches in America to move out of a, primar- a place of primary professing progressive policies to really taking action. Although not as powerful as the religious right, which has been credited with electing, helping elect uh, Republican presidents and most well-known leaders, uh, excuse me, such as Pat Robertson, the religious left is now uh, slowly coming together as a force in U.S. politics. I thought that was interesting. Because most, most people don't associate the left with, with religion. No. You know, they associate it with communism or atheism or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the left, a lot of people on the left are extremely religious. Mm-hmm. You know? And they're, they're you know, charities. and they, I mean, they, these people give a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the desperate group, uh, yeah, the desperate, the disparate group, rather, traditionally sees as lacking cloud, has been propelled into political activism by Trump's policies on immigration, health care, and social welfare, according to clergy members, activists, and academics. A key test will be how well it will be able to translate its mobilization into votes in 2018 midterm elections, congressional elections. It's one of the dirty little secrets of American politics that there has been a religious left all along, and it hasn't—it just hasn't done a good job of organizing," uh, said uh, Patrick Horn, uh, Hornbeck, the second, okay, chairman of the theological department at Fordham University, a Jesuit school in New York. And it's taken a crisis, or a perceived crisis, like uh, Trump mm-hmm. election, 
to cause folks on the religious left to really own their religion in the public square. Uh, religion, progressive activism, religious progressive activism has been part of American history. Um, religious leaders and their followers played key roles in campaigns to abolish slavery, promote self-civil rights, and end the Vietnam War, among others. The, la the latest upwelling of left-leaning religious activism has accompanied the dawn of the Trump presidency. Some of the religious left are inspired by Pope Francis, the Roman Catholic leader. Say, this gets a little, little fuzzy for me. You know, you, know, you start, start worshiping a pedophile. <laughs> Foot kissing. Pedophile is a little tough. But although sport for the religious left is difficult to measure, Leaders point to several examples, such as a surge of congregations offering to provide sanctuary to immigrants seeking asylum, churches urging religions, Republicans to uh, reconsider repealing the Obamacare law, uh, and uh, call to preserve federal spending on foreign aid. It, it goes on, but the but you know the important thing to remember is that uh, you know. Is, is that there is a religious left working out there. You don't hear about them, you know, but they're there. And uh, until they start running some senators or some congresspeople or some other people, you know, who believe in their causes, uh, they're going to still remain anonymous, you know. Coach so Dixon, mm -hmm. yep. you want to read this one? Yes. $75,560. A, um, housing a prisoner in California now costs more than a year at Harvard. Well, maybe they ought to spend that money in a different way. Of course, they could, you know. I mean, if they took $7,500, $75,000, uh, and put that into a, into housing for the homeless, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. that, I mean, just Get that amount. Instantly. Oh, God, yeah. You know, for for all the, the prisoners they have, it's, it's absurd, you know. Right, but look, look, you know, a lot of people... A lot of people wind up going to prison because they don't have houses, you know what I mean? Of the increase. 
The result is a per inmate cost that is the nation's highest. And 2000 above tuition, fees, room and board, and other expenses to attend harvest. Since 2015, California's per inmate costs have surged nearly $10,000, or about 13%. New York is distant second in overall cost of about $69,000. Critics say with fewer inmates, the cost should be falling. Now that's where, in now that we're incarcerating less, we haven't ramped the system back down, says Chris Owen, Executive Director of the Left-Leaning California Budget and Policy Center. For example, the, the Corrections Department has one employee for every two inmates, compared with one employee for roughly ever four inmates in 1994. Why does it cost so much? Costs rising even as prison population declines. Um, but this is what's going on, and that's uh, pretty sad. Pretty sad that, that the taxpayer is getting stuck with that kind of bill. You know, pretty tough stuff. Oh, this killed me. This, this absolutely killed me. Diamond and Silk. You know, there's two so black so girls. Yeah, black and there's girl. two black girls that do that were big Trump supporters. Yeah, it says this article says by the Daily Beast says they are now practically senior advisors to the president through the TV. Oh Isn't that sick? Wait, wait this is really, really ridiculous. It's uh, just ridiculous. But, hey, it's, this is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah, I just see uh, I just want to make sure I know what to call. Yeah. Um, the president has grown fond of the duo Known for the president has grown fond of the duo known for acid tongue takedowns and pro Trump rap songs. <laughs> but, yeah. Diamond, yeah. Diamond and Silk are now practically senior advisors to the president. Um, trying to get to this article. At a time when President Trump is eager to surround himself with supportive television personalities, hmm. uh, He's taken a particular liking to the pair of YouTube stars known as, among others, a pro-Trump, anti-Eminem rap song entitled Trump's Yule President. Um, Diamond and Silk are not your prototypical um, Trump boosters. They are African-American women who have relied on the Internet for their rise to fame or infamy, depending on your political posture. They are known predominantly for their direct-to-camera impassioned defenses of the president and acid-tongue taste-downs of his critics. But in recent weeks, the two have been growing presence, uh, had a growing presence on Fox News, which has in turn put their commentary squarely on Trump's radar, and uh, according to White House officials, he's impressed. Within the, hall, <laughs> within the halls of White House, Trump has repeatedly commented to the aides above over the past few months about how much he enjoys watching Diamond and Silk on TV, referencing specific clips and interviews that have done on shows such as Fox and Friends or Hannity. Two West Wing officials and other outside Trump ally tell the Daily Beast, according to those close to the president, Trump finds their unabashedly loyalty as well as their style and flair fantastic and 
officials could not, however, confirm if Trump's had if Trump had seen the Trump yo president rap. Okay. So this is like crazy, crazy. But anyway. Um Diamond Hardaway and Rochelle Silk Richardson uh initially gained prominence on their stump for Trump YouTube videos. And uh <coughs> and in recent months they have all but disappeared from all of the major networks except Fox News. At the network they remain relatively small players. One person familiar with Fox News online traffic said that the duo uh, are not mentioned during Fox News daily traffic meetings, although uh, high-performing conservative pundits like contributor Tommy 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 rather Larry, they also lack strong relationships with many of the top brass, owing in part to the fact that they generally don't appear during the segments that other guests and typically appear remotely. So yeah, they're just they're more of a quirk, you know. Uh, yeah, that, that's what they're using them as. But I think you can. I think we got a little take here of them on YouTube. This is, I don't know if you've never heard of Diamond and Silk. But this is their, their parody of Eminem. The calm before the storm, right here. Wait. He's gonna get rid of all immigrants. He's gonna build that thing up taller than this. And any fan of mine who's a supporter of his, I'm drawing in the sand a line to either for or against. And if you can't decide who you like more in your split on who you should stand beside, I'll do it for you with this. This is Eminem. He's a white supremacist. Mm-hmm. His father was a white supremacist. 
his entire staff is a white supremacist. The only black guy he has on his staff is Ben Carson, who's a complete fucking idiot. All right? So it's like, you know, Warren, Warren the other day blasted him, you know, and said he should absolutely be fired because he's a complete incompetent idiot. So, you know, to me, you know, Diamond and Silk are, you know, I'm sorry, man, but they're they're jerking the wrong uh, the wrong uh, the wrong dick, you know, because it ain't Trump, buddy. It ain't Trump, you know. You get back to the basics, girls. I don't know if he's paying you ten grand a piece a month or what the hell he's paying you to be his uh, his cheerleaders. For, but uh, you know, listen to poor Amoroso there. She got she got booted out of the White House, you know. Sure. And she was his biggest cheerleader, so you know she's she's just like, oh god. Why? Come on, girls. You know, get off the payroll. Get on with reality. Trump ain't nobody's president. He's just a big loser. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. But anyway, that's 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 the news, babe. That's the kind of news we're getting these days. Sucks. Sucks rocks. But that's what we're kind of getting. And that's the kind of insanity that we're seeing. Uh, it's it's sad. It's extremely sad to see this happening. Oh, I would agree with you. Yeah. Facebook confirms that it records users' call history, stoking for. Can you imagine that? So anyway, if you're on your iPhones and stuff, you know, they're recording all that stuff. Mm-hmm. They're recording all of the users' call logs. I mean, you know, uh, this is. Madness. I, you know, I, uh, sorry, folks, but it's madness. A probe by the Federal Trade Commission is the latest bad news for Facebook. And uh, after the agencies announced Monday it was launching a non-public uh, investigation in the social media giant's privacy practices, the FTC has confirmed is firmly fully committed to using all the tools at its disposal. The FTC takes very serious resent, uh, recent press uh, reports raising substantial concerns about the privacy practices of, of uh, Facebook. Uh, I mean, hey, be, he had to have known. He of course, of course. It's lame apology. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have And now they're recording, they've been recording... God knows what else. All your, all your, any, any... Uh, Things you have in your cell phone. I mean, your your recordings or your. I any, I don't know. They're just. Uh, Their attitude is it's up to you to make the laws. No, it's not up to you. It's up to you to not use them. Unfortunately, I use Facebook. A lot of people send me a lot of good information on Facebook, and um, you know I, I appreciate it a lot. But um, you know to to steal people's stuff and to you know it's just just. Too amazing, too hard to understand. Uh, John Bolton had a curious appearance in a Russian gun rights video. Yeah. Uh, uh, incoming White House National Security uh, Advisor John Bolton appeared in a 213 video for Russian gun rights uh, group uh, founded by a Putin ally close to the NRA. There's a guy who's definitely racist, but yeah. This is uh, this is the beloved Prime Minister of Israel. Mm-hmm. He said, "If we 
it will be better to live with jihadist attackers than African migrants. Israeli Prime Minister drops the bombshell. Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Yahoo, uh, has said that an, ele- an eclectic fence, uh, electric rather fence, along the Israeli-Egypt border has saved Jewish states from jihadist attackers or Electronic fence has saved them from jihadist attacks, but more so, it saved them from the uh, you know it saved them from the onslaught of uh, uh, tide of African uh, migrants. Netanyahu stated that a tide of non-Jewish immigration would threaten the very st- fabric of Israel, and the Prime Minister of Israel uh, on Tuesday, March 20th, said that an electric fence along the Israeli-Egypt border has saved Jewish state from the influx of African migrants who have believed they're worse than they, who he believed were worse than the jihadist attackers. <laughs> attackers, Jesus, God. I, I, I can't deal with this guy. These guys are just as blatantly racist as, as Trump. Nixon's aide said that uh, Nixon's aide said that the war on drugs was a tool to target black people. The war on drugs was a tool for the government to crack down on the leftist protesters and black people, a former Nixon advisor admitted. Uh, 3,000 people shot in Chicago so far this year. Wow. The city racked up 34 shootings over the weekend, but uh, the judge, but the gun violence is down as of this last year, according to data kept by the Tribune. 3,000 people shot since January, and it's only March, okay? But it's down over last year. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, it's not. It's crazy. It's crazy. God, it's President signs overseas data bill access bill into law. You ready for this one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the overseas data access bill is this. I'll tell you this just one second. The House of Representatives approves a piece of legislation that makes it easier for law enforcement to get access to info, even if it's stored in other countries officially owned as clarifying law overseas use of data act the set of regulations was part of the 2000 page uh, spending bill uh, the president had just signed cloud was created to um, replace the current rules for cross-border access to data so in other words they can go in and now the, the justice department or investigators can go into the cloud and pull out anything they possibly want oh boy you know, because they can go in there and get anything they want from anywhere, overseas or anything, you know. That's unbelievable. And he wrote, he signed that into law. I'll end you with this one tonight. A couple have been forced to destroy a 50-year-old pond on their own property because the government owns the rainwater. That makes sense to you. And you have to be able to get along with it. This is in Oregon. Mm-hmm. A couple
couple in the state of Oregon was notified by state officials to destroy a two-acre pond on their property. Why? It is the property's most attractive feature. And because the government said so, they have to remove it. Although John and Sabrina Carey purchased the 10-acre property near Butte Falls two and a half years ago. The pond has been in a place for 50 years. That fact doesn't remotely matter to the Jackson County Watermaster's Office. A basically bought a lemon, said John, who became teary-eyed at the edge of the practically uh, ice-covered body of water uh, near the target of, uh, is targeted by the government. And he says, that's how they explain it to me. The couple who desperately wants to keep the stunning, long-lasting feature intact. So, as the Mail Tribune reports, the Carries have pleaded with the Medford Water Commission to adopt the pond, then treat it as a municipal water source. This was something that Jackson City Watermaster Larry is opposed to, uh, due to the precedent it would set. But the water commissioner has rights to watershed around the Carey's property, where dozens, if not hundreds, of ponds are located, as well as Medford's primary source of water. Um, the Carey's aren't the only people in the watershed who have difficulties with government water. Uh, Eagle Point resident Gary Henderson said 90 days in jail for illegally harboring some 13 million gallons of rainwater. That's enough rain to fill around 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And Harrington uh, masterfully said, uh, made uh, several ponds in his property, even building docks uh, for one of them, and filling it with largemouth bass. This insi his insistence that the water would assist in fire control and prevention didn't satisfy the government. This is all in part from his 1925 state law that dictates that the rank that the water belongs to the water commission. But no matter what the hell he does, he's stuck. Got a beautiful pond, and he's stuck. So, anyway, folks, that's the end of tonight's program. We thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tell your friends about how incredible the show was, right? Mm -hmm. What a wonderful show it was, and we hope that you will. Uh, Lots of stuff going on, though, Leo. Oh, hell yeah. Some of it is pretty scary, I have to admit. Oh, yeah. Well, we hope and, that you'll enjoy the show. And you feel a little bit helpless in dealing with it. Well, we try to get that stuff out to you every week, and uh, we've been doing it for yep. a lot of years. Good night, folks. So, see you later. Alligator. Ooh. I just stepped on the couch. Thank you. See you later, alligator. After a while, crocodile. Good night, everyone.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.